everyone. I'm your host, Christina Laney Mitri, and welcome to Smart Living Hawaii's podcast, where we discuss smart homes and technology, sustainability, healthy lifestyles, and smart business. Today, we'll continue our Sustainable Leaders series and have a talk story with Will Giese, the Executive Director of Hawaii Solar Energy Association. We will learn about this great organization, Solar Facts You May Not Know, along with clean energy policy and city and county permitting that may affect all of you. So, aloha, Will. Aloha. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, before we begin, I always start with a quick bio. So here we go. Well, Gisi is a wealth of knowledge in the solar world and focuses on policy analysis, creation, and advocacy of clean energy policy through the use of rooftop solar hot water heaters and then also PV, photovoltaic. He is heavily involved in regulatory and legislative issues regarding solar energy in Hawaii. Um, and we also have him as the current chair of the Sierra Club of Hawaii's Energy Subcommittee, mm-hmm. which he advises the chapter on a variety of clean energy policies impacting the state. So we'll definitely dive into that a little bit later. He has experience in utility policy, solar PV, solar thermal energy systems design, natural gas policy, and regulation. So Mr. Giese holds a bachelor's degree in environmental public policy and sustainable development from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and a master's degree at the University of Hawaii, which I'm assuming is how you got here, maybe? Uh, No, actually, I got here through the solar industry. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Well, we will get into that as well. Um, Thank you so much. He lives with his fiancée, Jessica, and his red-nosed pit bull, Eva. That's right. Is that right? Okay, we'll, we'll dive into some of this. So, your background growing up, what would you like to share with our listeners today? Family, friends? Yeah, I don't think anybody's ever fun. asked me that in public. <laughs> <laughs> um, so growing up, I'm, I'm actually from Arkansas. Um, oh, Arkansas. Yeah. I have family over there. Yeah, I've lived all over the U.S. Um, my mom is a preacher. Uh, so as a preacher, you know, if you're a good preacher, she moves around a lot. So I ended up moving around a lot when I was a kid. Um, and I've lived... All over the Midwest, uh, parts of the South, Tennessee, obviously, Wisconsin, California, here. Um, And I ended up here uh, by way of California. My first job out of my bachelor's degree um, from the University of Tennessee was working on solar energy systems design for a company called Solar City. I designed, gosh, almost three megawatts of residential solar systems across the U.S. in, I think, 12 different states. And then I did so well that they asked if I wanted to move to Hawaii and they would pay for it and I said yes and then I <laughs> switched how long ago was that that's about five five years ago okay yeah by the way he does look really young he probably oh. <laughs> is I don't want to ask his age 27 see he is he's young look at yeah. what he's doing at this age awesome um okay so how what got you into this green space I always like to ask everybody that because they um sometimes it's you know 20 years that they've been doing it sometimes it's just something through their lives but what what got you into it sure um well actually before i was doing this i was a paramedic um so i did uh, emt work in california or in wisconsin and chicago and then i went and got my bachelor's degree and it was kind of this is lame but i was thinking about um you know as a paramedic you help people you help one person at a time and then i was thinking about how can i help as many people as possible and for me you know, I had a very big interest in clean energy. I worked um, for an environmental nonprofit in Tennessee that dealt with uh, lay science and uh, citizen science about natural gas extraction. I was really interested in kind of energy systems and the way that they worked. And then I worked for the Tennessee Solar Energy Association as an intern. And I got really into solar energy. And my first job was in solar energy. And then I just started reading about it and learning about it. And I wanted to make a move into policy. And I had a knack for it. So that's kind of how I ended up doing it. And I was lucky enough in the policy world, you know, mentorship is a very important thing. And I was lucky enough to run into some folks, a few different people, um, John Yoshimura, uh, Rick Reed, Marty Townsend at the Sierra Club, Robert Harris at Sunrun, um, who kind of took me under their wing in different ways and showed me around how the legislature works, how the PUC works, um, all those different things. So, uh, I fell into it. I was lucky enough to have some mentors, and I do have a little bit of a knack for it. So I just that's how I got into it. <laughs> wow. So, well, I'm glad to have you here in Hawaii. I think we all are. Um, 
So for some of us, every there's you know a wide range of listeners, but we do have a lot of people that are green to green. So I try to cover some of the basics sure. and then dive into things that are a little more in depth through your conversation so everybody understands. And um, so therefore, let's start with solar energy and um, we can dive into some of the details about solar that maybe not everyone knows about as some of the issues, misperceptions of solar. And um, so we can explain it a little bit better than we can get more into the policy of what's going on now here in Hawaii. So solar PV, photovoltaic versus solar water heaters. That's pretty, pretty basic, I think, for some, but some people have no clue. Sure. Yeah, so um, it's a good question, actually. I love the basics, um, and I try to explain complex things in the most basic way I can so that everyone can uh, understand it, or attempt to at least. But solar PV and solar thermal is what we call it, or solar hot water, as you might see. It's using solar energy, but in two different ways. So solar PV uses solar energy to turn DC electric into AC electric. Um, So that's electric energy that you use to power appliances in your home, right? or charge your car if you have an EV, um, anything that gets plugged into your home, or even power the grid. So we have utility-scale PV systems. Or you can store that electricity in a battery. Often it's a chemical battery like lithium-ion, or as old as lead-acid, which is basically like a a car battery, is a lead-acid battery. And then solar thermal is using the thermal energy of the sun right, to heat water. So you have thermal energy that comes off of the sun, and it hits a collector on a roof that is basically a big glass box that's filled with copper piping. And it heats water that goes through that copper piping. And then that hot heated water gets stored usually in a tank, an 80 or 120 gallon water tank, like any electric water heater would. So those are kind of the two ways that solar energy is utilized in Hawaii. But you know, solar energy is also important for wind, right? So solar energy helps create wind. Um, and it's also important for tides. You know, the sun is a very important resource that we have that we use in a lot of different ways. So also with, just to explain, you can't capture, you know, if you're getting solar water heaters, you can't keep that energy and store it. So You just, can. Oh, you can? Yeah. Well, I mean, a water heater the water is a battery. Tank. But I mean, like, not like you can connect it. Can you connect it to a battery? No. no. So not for electrical yeah, energy. That's what I mean. Right, but yeah. for thermal energy, yeah. you can. And actually, I mean... How long does it last? Like if you're collecting sun, I yeah. guess, right? Yeah, you're yeah. Collecting sun for your hot water heater, um, how long will it last if you're collecting it in the daytime? Like it goes good for the evening? Which yeah, is for sure. So more than 24 hours um, in a well-insulated tank, uh, you'll have hot water. If you don't use any of it, it'll stay there and it'll be hot. And the other kind of misconception about solar thermal too is that they work in, during cloud cover, right? So they're efficient enough that if, even if they get you know cloud-covered sun, so places like, let's say, Kailua or Kaneohe, where it's a little bit more overcast than it is in a place like Eva Beach, right? Um, those solar thermal heaters still work. They still get sun. Um, usually you need one more collector um, to kind of allow for all of that thermal energy. You need a little bit more square, square foot space uh, for the heater, but they still work. It's not necessarily how hot it is outside. It's more of the rays. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. The rays penetrate the sun. That's why you put sunscreen on even when it's cloudy, right? Yeah. Same thing. Okay, so now we have that that moving uh, forward. We wanted to jump into own systems versus leased systems. And this is for photovoltaic PV systems because um, nowadays we are getting more and more systems up on roofs and um, trying to understand them, what people have done with them in the past and um, how it affects you as a homeowner. If you are purchasing a home or if you are selling a home with PV systems on it, these are now um, issues that come up or arise or questions that will come up that you will have as a buyer or you will have to share as a seller. So maybe we can dive into that. Yeah, of course. So I think it's good information to know. There's, I think, one in three houses in Oahu has a solar PV system on them. Wow, is it up to 33%? Mm -hmm. That's So there's about 110,000 or 120,000 total solar systems deployed across the state. Um, This includes commercial systems too, but most of them, by and large, are residential, single-family homes. 
So the chances that you're either coming across a PV system or a solar thermal system, which I think it's almost one in two single-family homes have a solar thermal system now because they've been around it's since the 70s. And it's been mandatory on new New home construction. From, is it 2010? No. 2009. 2009. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow, it's pretty close. <laughs> yeah, it is close. I'm impressed. Um, but yeah, I think it's good to know because the chances are is you're, you're probably going to come across a solar system. And as we get closer to 2045, when our RPS gets to 100%, so RPS is Renewable Portfolio Standard, we're going to have even more of those systems. So so you're right in that there are, there are kind of two basic ways that uh, solar system ownership can occur. Uh, one is through a lease, so it's like any kind of lease, you're basically renting the solar system from a company, right? So there's a solar company that owns the asset of your solar system, and you essentially rent your roof space to them, and then you collect a savings from that energy that's generated from your solar system. But you're also paying on a lease, and you're paying whatever electric bill you might have left, um, So if the system is designed to 80% of your total electric bill, you're going to have 20% of your electric bill on average left, and then you'll pay the lease payment as well, which those two combined, if the company has done their homework, should be less than what your electric bill would have been otherwise. Um, The point about a lease is that I think if you're trying to sell a home, you know, there's a third party that's involved is the party that owns the solar system, which is often the developer, right? So it's the solar company that owns that solar system. HECO is involved in that your system is often interconnected to their grid. And so there's a two-page piece of paperwork that you can find on HECO's website that allows transfer of ownership from the old homeowner to the new homeowner. Um, You as the homeowner, you you own your home, you rent your roof space to the company that owns the asset of your solar system. And then there's the solar company themselves. So that's a lease. Also, you might find old power purchase agreements, which is similar to a lease. but it is a kind of a guaranteed power agreement uh, that your solar system will provide to you as a user. But again, the, the main difference is that in a PPA and a lease, you don't own the system, right? The company that installed it owns that system. And then the other one is a loan, where you would own your system or an outright cash buy, where you would just buy the system yourself if you have the capital to do so. Or if you get a loan, you, know, you own the loan and you're paying off the loan, but eventually you'll own that system. Yes, and I know a lot of people have done solar in the past um, to get the credits and everything like that. So things have been done, and um, we had a record boom of all of these solar industry um, partners and people that came into the game. Could you explain how things have kind of settled? Yeah. Because, I mean, how many we've had, and then it's dropped, and then what happens? Because I think people are wondering if all of these bellied up some of these companies then what happens to them who manages these you know these these pv systems and things like that so to dispel any things that people are kind of worried about and yeah. things like that. so we had a you know uh a huge decline unfortunately the solar industry in hawaii has been kind of cyclical um over the past 15 20 years it's had a, a good amount of up and downs you'll often hear in my industry kind of the the allegory of the solar coaster where we're going up and <laughs> solar down coaster. yeah not i'm not claiming ownership over that <laughs> but yeah you often talk about the solar coaster in hawaii where it goes you know we have big booms where you know in 2012 we had a huge boom it was probably the biggest amount of solar installations than any year preceding it or any year since because well there's a lot of there were a lot of reasons um one of them had to do with the fact that we had net energy metering open at the time which is one of the most popular tariffs um, we had two state, we had the state tax credit and the federal tax credit at the full amounts. And we had a pretty sharp decline in the uh, total cost of a solar system. The all in cost um, was pretty low because there were a lot of very inexpensive solar modules that were coming on the market that were still kind of high wattage per square foot. And you also had, you saw in 2012, kind of the beginnings of a leasing model. It was kind of the first time, 2011 and 2012, was when the lease first really came into being. Um, from a solar company standpoint, and you saw just kind of ease of installation. So you had systems in phase became very big, where in phase is really a plug and play solution for installers. So it, it wasn't as technically complex to install as a regular what's called a string inverter, which at the time was a lot more complicated to put together. Um, and you had systems that were a lot easier to kind of just put up into one day. 
you had a lot of systems that you could put up in four hours or less, you know, big systems that you could just put up very quickly. So you had a lot of churn and burn um, in the industry. But then around 2015, the PUC, the Public Utilities Commission, decided to get rid of NIM. They, they closed the program, opened two new programs, Customer Grid Supply and Customer Self-Supply, which we can talk about what the difference is later if you want. Um, yes, let's do that. Let's do that. But uh, then the industry tapered off and then really took a decline. So you saw in 2015, you know, there were, I think, 9,000 total permitted systems in the year, uh, which 2015 itself was kind of a slow year. But then the following year, there were probably about... What was the cutoff date for NEM? I mean, October. I think it was October 21st, 2015. It was in October. By December 31st, the system had to be... They were no longer doing NIMS, yeah. So they had to be like by, had to be installed and installed and up in everything, right? But we given permission to operate. Got it in, yeah, on the thirty first of December. I forget what year it was. But we <laughs> it was like probably twenty fifteen. We had like four systems, and it was like sixty four panels. My parents have a, a larger carbon footprint to offset, I guess. <laughs> It's okay, at least they're trying. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, so 2015 happened. It was a pretty, it was a bigger year. And then 2016, after NIM ended, you know, we saw a huge decline in the market. The total amount of companies that were permitting five or more systems in any given month went down uh, by a significant amount. And then the total amount of systems that got permitted in 2016 was 50% or more, I think, less than what it was the preceding year. And one of the, the there's a couple ways we measure this. So we measure it by permit counts. So you just you literally just go in and count the amount of solar permits that happened in a quarter and how many that happened in a half in a year, and that's kind of a good indicator of the health of the market. You look too at how many total companies there are um, doing business. And so mm-hmm. the way that I measure it is if it's companies that are pulling five or more solar permits in a month, that's an active company. So in 2015, there were over 300 of those companies doing wow. business in Hawaii. And in 2018, there were less than 100. So we lost a huge amount of companies. Um, and those companies, you know, some of them, a lot of them didn't close down. They just changed their business. So instead of doing solar PV, you know, there's a few companies that went and just did regular electrical contracting, right? So this is like, you know, installing just electrical systems and housing. Some they com- might have had a portfolio yeah, of lots things of different that they've business. done. It's just solar was one of their things, and then they re- maybe removed it right. from their business when it wasn't in the same demand, I guess. Right. Exactly. And a lot of uh, local solar companies actually do both solar PV and solar thermal, so solar hot water. And in the solar industry, we really like to talk about how solar thermal is a pretty steady business. It's the backbone of the industry, so there's kind of always a constant drip of solar thermal work out there. So a lot of smaller companies just basically transitioned. You saw, you know, one of the top permit pulling companies for PV systems in 2015 became the top permit pulling company for solar thermal systems in 2016. So real quick, just to put a price, if you don't have, you know, solar water heater or your water heater looks like it's about to die or it's like super old and rusty, (laughs) like some places you see, um, how much is that going to run you? Okay, so the all-in cost without tax credits and rebates for a solar thermal system is typically around six, six or seven thousand dollars. And with the tax credits or extra bennies that you can get. So if you're doing a retrofit, you qualify for a seven hundred and fifty dollar Hawaii Energy rebate. So Hawaii Energy is a, a kind of a public-private partnership energy efficiency program that's run. Uh, they get their money from uh, electric ratepayers. So ratepayers pay a surcharge, and then uh, Hawaii Energy uses that to build out energy efficiency stuff, and they do that through rebates. And you also qualify for a state tax credit and a federal tax credit. So at the end of the day, um, a solar system is going to be, with those tax credits, around $3,500. Okay, so you have about $3,500 out of pocket up front, or you have to pay the six, seven thousand. It depends on the company. Okay. Um, sometimes, you know, they will work in the rebate as part of the total system cost, and they'll claim it for themselves. Or sometimes you can loan that money and collect the tax credit on the next time that you file tax credits and get it back as a rebate check. Um, it just kind of depends on the company. But often you, you usually have to put some money down, yeah. right? 
I don't know if you have to pay for the whole thing all at once, but it it depends on the company. And then how would you say that, how long till you uh, get your money back in? So you're talking about return on investment. Yeah, return on investment. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the one thing. So, you know, I think a lot of people's reaction is like, oh man, that's expensive, right? Because you could go out and get a really cheap, inefficient $500 instant gas heater if you wanted to, right? That runs on propane. But the difference is, is that you're always paying a gas bill every month. Um, there's environmental parts to that too, obviously, but those costs are harder to quantify. So the question that you should be asking yourself is, what is the return on my investment? How, what is the point at which I've paid off this system and I'm basically getting that energy for free? For a solar thermal system, it's usually within three years that you'll have that paid off, right? And the system itself lasts 15, 20 years or more if you take care of it. And solar thermal systems are relatively easy to take care of. They're a little bit more intensive, I think, than a regular water heater system. You need to know a little bit about it, about taking care of it. You Basically, it's two things. You need to regularly change your anode rods, which are this, like, this kind, of, kind of magnetic rod that exists inside the uh, tank that you know helps suck out some of the minerals that would mess up your tank um, and the piping. And you need to... Uh, make sure that you're not leaving your solar system on when you go on vacation. Because <laughs> problem with solar thermal systems is not that they get too cold, it's that they get too hot, huh. right? Which is a good problem to have for a water heater, um, but you need to kind of be aware of all that. So again, to go back to your earlier question, it's about three years, and then basically you're scot-free for that. And for people's electric bill, typically this is between 20 and 40% of their total electrical load on their home. And that's huge. So. It's huge. So, you know, when people call me up at the HSCA, you know, I represent 95% of the industry, but I don't represent any one company. So I can be a little bit unbiased in that way and the advice that I give people. I'm not unbiased and I think that you should go solar, obviously. But um, I do say, you know, if you're thinking about getting a PV system, that's great, you know. But if you are worried about the total cost of the system or you don't want to get a lease or you maybe want to wait it out and see one of the things that i tell people is you know think about getting a solar thermal system which is way cheaper the average pv system is going to cost you total you know thirty five thousand dollars before tax credits mm-hmm. pv uh, solar thermal system is six grand before tax credits and that's going to knock out 20 to 40 percent of your total bill Plus, you can get things like a solar attic fan, which is like $500 and, you know, circulates hot air through your house, out of your house, and runs on solar. There's a lot of things that you can do and um, tips and tricks that we can go over as well and with other... Hawaii Energy has a long Tons list and a lot of rebates for a lot of these things. Um, we also just did a podcast with Pono Home as well. Oh, great. Um, did you talk so, to Scott? Yeah, I talked to Scott. So he just um, did a podcast as well, and he can do an energy audit for you guys. He can. And so when when that comes down the pike, I mean, if you want to give you know them a call, you'll really know where you can save and um, how, how great it will be to like lower all of this before you even think about getting like photovoltaic, right? So you, you don't have too many panels or you don't have to buy as many panels. Right? Exactly. So, anyhow, now that we have gotten into that, before I forget, after the NEM, the net energy metering um, died off in 2015, you were mentioning the two separate, I guess, what HECO set up. Could you explain those? Because that's basically what it is today. Well, there's actually even more. <laughs> so I'll do <laughs> it real the, quick and try basic, to be simple. Yeah, the okay. basic is, so after 2015, you know, there was essentially, for all purposes, there was one tariff that you could sign up under that most people did, and it was NIM. And NIM is you, it's the net energy cost that you have to pay at the end of the day if you have a solar system. What that means is that the electrical cost rate that you sell energy that's generated by your system is the same as the rate that you buy it from HECO. So if HECO is selling you energy at 30 cents a kilowatt hour, you are selling them energy that you're generating at 30 cents a kilowatt hour. And if you generate the exact amount of energy that you're buying from HECO, your bill is zero dollars. It's actually not zero dollars because there's a minimum bill you have to pay if you have a solar system, which well, that is that just keeps going up. I remember it yeah. was like fifteen. Now it's 18. thirty-seven. Is I it thirty-seven? Good lord. Yeah, <laughs> you can complain to Hiko about that one. I don't have any control over that. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, so, but still, I mean, $37, I mean, this is not a defense of the minimum bill, but it is less than, you know, $400, right? So that was net energy metering, but then it was replaced with um, customer grid supply, which the way to think about customer grid supply is that it's essentially the same as net energy metering, but you sell energy at a less rate. So it doesn't matter what the retail rate of electricity is. So again, let's say it's 30 cents. You're always going to be selling it at 15 cents and there's no yearly true up. So for CGS, you did not have a month to month carryover of credits. So now, if you for those who don't know, the net energy metering is grandfathered in mm-hmm. for for homes that have it. That's right. right. So you're able to transfer this over to the next yeah. seller. I mean, well, the owner of the property, you know, when you when you which is in- I don't know if that has a an effect on the cost of the home, but it should because it's really a lucrative kind of thing to have as a NEM agreement. Yeah. So um, it actually, I've actually just had a client recently asking about it. And when you talk to, because, you know, I'm in real estate. So when we talk to our clients about what their uh, non-negotiables are and things of that sort, it wasn't a non-negotiable. It is definitely like a huge benefit and he would ask about every single property if there's net energy meter like them yeah. on them so um it is really important to people they're starting to see the value of it because well i don't know when i look at my mom and dad's home and how their energy bill was getting into the 700s <laughs> per <laughs> month because like i said um they have a high uh, <laughs> carbon footprint um you know and then it dropped to just being 37 dollars. well 18 dollars. yeah whatever the minimum bill um it's that's a lot of savings and that's a Mm. huge part of like okay you could have more or qualify more for a home you know or mortgage or whatever it may be or you put that whole car payment or (laughs) the tesla you wanted to buy to plug into your (laughs) (laughs) but you know what i mean so um so yeah it, it does it's starting to have an effect on uh, purchasers. I'm starting to see it. Um, maybe not as much as California sure. yet, which I heard they now have a mandated thing. I think this year they do. It every, starts this year. Every, every new home will be with a PV system. In yeah. California. So how we have that with solar water heaters, mm-hmm. um, it is now a mandatory. So, you know, keep on going. Sorry, totally okay. cut you off with that whole thing. We just spun off onto another thing. But no, you go energy world. There's a lot of tangents. <laughs> so CGS is like NIM, except it's a less amount and there's no yearly true. So you can't carry your credits over from month to month. So let's say you have a very, um, a very good solar June, right? You have lots of solar energy and you don't use all of it. For NIM, you could bank those credits and then tr- let's say you're uh, the next month in July is very, very cloudy, right? And you don't have any sun. Well, you have credits left over from June that you're going to use in July. Uh, that's called a yearly true up because at the end of the year, you true up the remaining credits and you start from zero again. But throughout the year, you can use credits month to month if you have extra ones. Um, CGS did not have that. It has a monthly true up. So at the end of every month, you true up those credits. So what happened was is that CGS systems were larger than probably they needed to be. Um, because you couldn't carry over credits and because the total credit amount that you were getting for your energy was less. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's this, that tariff was, it, you know, it is what it is. It, it had a capacity limit of the amount of total systems that could be installed um, uh, by a megawatts. So I think it was 25 megawatts on Oahu was the total amount of systems that could be installed. Then you had CSS, which is the other tariff. So CSS stands for Customer Self-Supply. And what this is is that it's a, it's a self-consuming tariff. So all the energy that you generate on your solar system has to be consumed on-site and cannot be exported onto the grid. So NIM would be you just generate a bunch of energy from your PV system and you pump it out onto the grid. There's usually no batteries involved and you just get the net, right? The net savings of whatever your energy generated was to the grid versus what you bought. For CSS, it often required a battery or it often requires a battery, it's still an open tariff, um, where you would generate a bunch of energy during the day, and then it would be stored in the battery if you're not using it at your home, and then you would use that energy at night. But you would not get a credit from any electricity that you exported onto the grid, and you're actually technically 
prevented from exporting a significant amount of energy onto the grid. So that's CSS. So if you come across a house and you're like asking what interconnection tariff they're under, and they say, I'm under CGS, I'm under CSS, I'm under NIM, you now know the difference. In 2017, two more programs were opened, and they're still kind of gaining traction. There's not that many of them out there, uh, but they were CGS Plus, which is essentially exactly the same as CGS, but even smaller credit amount. So instead of 15 cents, it's 11. But they also is that went, what it has to be now, like moving forward, or so you can't. If you bought a solar system today, you can only under you can only install it under a smart export, which I'll get into a CGS plus or a CSS. But we're working on new tariffs starting this week. Um, so hopefully, in about a year, we'll have a new tariff that will be better than my plan is to make it better than old NIM. <laughs> but, really? Yeah, that's the plan. Who's um, going to prove that? I guess I've already proved it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so we can talk about that gets complicated. Okay. But, but I would so, like to tackle it because it is what's happening in legislation today. Because yeah. um, I know I'm setting up a whole bunch of podcasts right now for recording. I am due in a couple of weeks, pregnant-wise. So um, this may not air right away, but I do want to know, let you know that this right now is in the when you legislation just just is getting started. Yeah. And so that's why. <laughs> He's going to tackle some of those things in a minute. Um, okay, so let's see. Where have we gone and where are we going today? Um, before we get into the actual policy and everything, can you explain um, HECO? I know it's to <laughs> can have... Can I explain HECO? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it is, it is, it's like a monopoly, right? It is But a they have to work with us and um, provide... They have, they have, you know, I guess, you know, there's an, always an uproar as to what, what they do, but there is things that they have to follow. So could you explain a little bit more on, on maybe some of their, um, how it works, um, the hurdles they face, just, you know, and what they have to do to stay afloat, um, you know, what is expected of them as an energy utility? Sure. So obviously, you know, I have a bias, <laughs> so everything, take it with a grain of salt. So you're right, uh, HECO is what's called a natural monopoly. Um, so you know most utilities are natural monopolies in that way. In, in Hawaii, we're, we're very small, and uh, we really just have HECO and their kind of different neighbor island companies, and Kauai has its own cooperative. It's called KIUC. But for the most part, if you're an electricity customer in Hawaii, you're doing business with HECO, MIKO, or HELCO, which is basically all the same depending on which island you live on. And they're a natural monopoly, but they're also regulated. So they're a heavily regulated monopoly by the Public Utilities Commission. Public Utilities Commission is a state agency um, that regulates two things. They regulate electricity and transportation. So they regulate kind of mats and chips going back and forth and what those rates are. And they also regulate electricity rates. They regulate gas rates and water rates. Um, so you've got those players. Then you have all the various stakeholders like myself. I represent the solar industry. The solar industry is a big player in the utility regulated utility space and so we get to have an opinion about things you have folks like blue planet foundation or the sierra club that have interest in um, clean energy um, and represent a large constituency you have other agencies like the consumer advocate which is involved in this um, conversation to uh, ostensibly represent the consumer and then you have the puc itself and then various counties sometimes get involved. Most notably, the county, the city and county of Honolulu gets involved in these conversations. So HECO is a publicly traded utility. It's a pretty standard kind of utility if you look at just various different utilities. It's investor-owned. Yeah. And it's investor-owned, which is important in that it, it has kind of a, a mand two mandates. It's got a mandate to serve its customers, but it also has a mandate to serve its shareholders, mm -hmm. right? So like any company that has shareholders, you want to maximize profit and minimize losses. That's kind of basic economic common sense. Um, for consumers, especially electrical consumers, you need to uh, make sure that the electricity that you're producing and providing to your customers is equitable across all customers. So it means that a customer in Makaha and a customer in downtown Honolulu get the same electricity access regardless of the distance or their economic situation or whatever. Um, but also that the system is reliable. So that means that when you turn on your lights, 
you should always be able to turn on your lights, period, right? It should, you should never have a minute where you're not supposed to be turning off your lights and it should, that quality of electricity should be the same no matter where you are. So those are there's two mandates, right? Coincidentally, in Hawaii, they have a third responsibility, which is to get to 100% electric, renewable energy by 2045 as a function of sales. So electricity sales is the way that they measure this. So 100% of HECO's total electricity sales has to be from renewable energy by 2045. So that is unusual, I think, in most states yes. don't really have an RPS. Um, in Hawaii, we are, we're the first state to have a 100% RPS. Um, HECO, yeah. yeah, so they also have another mandate to through performance-based rate making through this Rate Payer Protection Act that was passed in 2018 um, that has a variety of things. It's actually got, I think it's seven different aspects to it, but they include things like lowering electric bills, allowing people to have choice in the energy that they want to consume, so things like renewable energy um, and some other aspects as well. So HECO itself has kind of big shoes to fill as mm-hmm. a utility. Um, but they also are, you know, they're biased as a utility. So the way that investor-owned um, top-down, what's called a cost-of-service utility works, is that they are allowed to access capital from capital markets, so think like Wall Street, to buy infrastructure, so things like substations and transformers and distribution network stuff. Hmm. And then they take the cost of that, and then they pass it on to the ratepayer. Right? So the ratepayer is you and me and every electricity consumer, and we pay for that. So normally, um, investor-owned utilities are accused of kind of gold plating um, all their investments. So if they don't really have to pay for it and they pass that cost on to the ratepayer, why would they choose the least cost option? That's been a criticism waged against investor-owned utilities for a long time. Um, I think in Hawaii, you see a little bit of a a tension between that and the fact that rooftop PV, for instance, is so cheap. And the fear, I think, is what is referred to in this, you know, utility world as a utility death spiral. We're like, <laughs> we're very dramatic <laughs> in electricity <laughs> world. But it's this idea that if the utility remains this investor-owned kind of gold plating, cost of service type setup, at some point, PV systems are going to become so inexpensive and it is going to be so easy for you to connect an off-grid PV system mm-hmm. that you'll get what's called wide-scale grid defection, where the economic choice makes more sense to just have for consumers. Yeah, just to have their system. own system and to connect, disconnect from the grid, and that is a huge problem. So, you know, we represent uh, companies that uh, install off-grid systems. I'm totally cool with off-grid systems in general, but we think that there's actually more value in being connected to the grid. It's just that HECO should value that resource equally as they value any other resource, right? So in the future, you know, they should be able to aggregate PV systems together and use that essentially as a giant resource to them. And they should pay all the consumers for that usage. If they want to turn off your, if they want to prevent you from putting exports onto the grid, they should pay you for the fact that you're not getting that energy credit that you would otherwise, right? Um, things like that. If you have a battery on your house and it provides a bunch of different services, what we call grid services, HECO should pay you for that because they're utilizing that to create grid stability and to lower rates. Um, so I think, you know, HECO's got kind of a tough beat, honestly. If, if I worked at HECO, I think I'd be pretty stressed <laughs> a lot of the time. And there's good folks that work there. I think, like, you know, they're not all evil, but... but one of the things i think is that i i get really mad um just as a person that lives in hawaii that we kind of slow roll a lot of different things slow roll a lot of like renewable energy innovation and and stuff like that which i think could otherwise help ratepayers reduce their rates Mm -hmm. and it just is totally absurd to me as someone that hasn't lived in hawaii his whole life and that when i moved here I moved into a 650-square-foot apartment, which apparently is large by some standards. Uh, One bedroom? Two. Two bedrooms. Okay, small for two bedrooms. Small for two. (laughs) It's in Mililani, uh, where it's cooler. I don't have an air conditioner. I never turn on my lights. I'm almost never home. And my electric bill is still more than $100 a month. Is nuts to me because well, in Wisconsin, that sounds like so little bit to me. Right. So, but here's the problem, right? Because in Wisconsin, I had a, you know... 
900 square foot, two bedroom. Um, I paid half as much in rent as I did. I would run my heater like all winter long and my electric bill never exceeded $70 in any month ever. Mm -hmm. You know, I ran my air conditioner all the time and it's just like, it makes me so angry that that is the reality here. And it, it seems like everybody in Hawaii who, you know, I love Hawaii and I love all the people that live here, but we have some type of like a syndrome where we're just like all okay with the idea that our electricity costs are so absurdly high that your response well, why don't you was, explain, um, so we're at, what are, where are we at right now? 34 cents a kilowatt hour. I think and then is, can you name some other? Yeah. One of the states? next lowest ones I think is like 18 cents. And that's where? <laughs> uh, I think California. California and California. I mean, what are some of the top states for solar? California, Hawaii, uh, per capita, Hawaii has the more solar than any other state. Mm-hmm. Um, California is probably the biggest state for solar. New York um, has a lot of solar. Really? New mm-hmm. York? Okay. Uh, uh, what else? Uh, Oregon, surprisingly. Uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas mm. are really big for solar. And how much are the costs? I mean, I heard Florida is really low too, right? For or electricity costs? Electric? Yeah. I think they're under 10 cents a kilowatt hour. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. It's like a third of us. Um, maybe we could talk, since we're on pricing, um, what has California done? Could you explain the um, different time zones? I'm mean, not time zones, but um, price points depending on is peak hours or off peak. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you're talking about time this of isn't, use. This isn't necessarily something that's happening here right now. But I it's can going foresee to. it happening soon, which just keep in mind. So maybe you could explain. It actually is happening. Oh, so, it is? Yeah, we have a time of use pilot program. There's got 5,000 spots, but I think only 25. So there's 2,500 people in this state. So 2,500 people that are under time of use rate. Um, so what this is, is, and it's very important, I think, kind of for future, because I, I imagine all electricity rates and all interconnection programs will probably be under a time of use. So right now when you buy electricity, you're charged a flat rate. It doesn't matter what time you're using electricity, the cost of electricity is the same. But that is inefficient and it's a problem because the amount of energy that we generate varies throughout the day. So in the morning when everyone wakes up and is brushing their teeth and taking showers and using a lot of electricity before they go to work, the total and amount before the sun really before the sun up. comes up exactly the total amount of electricity being generated on any island is more than it is during the afternoon when people are just going about their day they're kind of disaggregated all over the state at work um, they're not taking they're showers. not taking showers their homes are are empty you know they're not using tons of electricity um, they're using kind of an efficient amount of electricity so the you can see this as like a curve. So in the morning, the curve goes up and forms a peak. And then in the afternoon, it goes down again. And then when people come home, it goes up, right? But when everybody's kind of neutral, that's like the best time to capture all the sun. <laughs> well, yeah. So, well, the, the, the graph for the sun, right, is when the sun rises, the amount of energy goes up. So in the middle of the day, it's the peak solar hour, Right, and then it goes down as the sun goes down. Right, so the amount of electricity generating is going up and down. So those are two different kind of graphs. The problem, though, is that because the electricity usage graph goes up and down and up um, during a day, and the flat rate is just a line that goes right through it, that does not capture the value of or the the savings during the middle of the day when you're when the electricity is arguably cheaper mm-hmm. because there's not much of it being produced, or the cost of that in the morning and the evening when you're using a lot of it. So it doesn't incentivize, one, customers to change their energy habits at all because they're under a flat rate and it doesn't matter to them. Yeah, and it, it also right. yeah. yeah, and it also doesn't really capture the total value of things like batteries that can take that huge chunk of solar energy that's being produced at a time when it's really not needed to the peaks. You can push it over to the peaks where it's more useful, mm-hmm. right? So there's two ways to do time of use. Um, there's one in a rate where you sign up for a rate and essentially you get charged. Often it's three different rates during, depending on what day you use electricity. So the rate that you get charged at, let's say, let's say your flat retail rate is 30 cents, right? Okay. So, and now you're under a time of use. So if you turn on your lights in the morning during peak times, you're going to get charged more than retail rate, more than flat retail rate let's say 40 cents for between the hours of 8 a.m. 
and 10 a.m. So if you use electricity in those hours, you're getting charged 40 cents a kilowatt hour for that. And then in the middle of the day, when the cost of electricity gets cheaper because not many people are using it, now you're charged 15 cents instead of 30 cents, right? For using electricity between 10 a.m. and let's say 4 p.m., right? And when you come home, it goes back up to 40 cents, right? Because you're using it during peak. Now, if you're only using electricity in the mornings and the evenings, your electric bill is probably going to be higher than it would under a flat scheme. And mm -hmm. that's going to make you think that's a price signal for you as a consumer. And it's going to make you think, oh, well, maybe I should be more energy efficient during peaks. Maybe I should take my showers at different times, right? Get that solar water heater. I've been Get that solar water heater. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't take as many showers, you know, like all those or different kinds of things. Take a shower at lunch. I don't know. No. Yeah. Maybe I should eat in the dark. So, um, <laughs> so you know, it's not it's that not extreme. like resort back to fire and candles or anything, but you know. Yeah. But I think, too, it, it kind of forces social change, right? So, like, I'm somebody that works from home, and I'm lucky enough to have a job that allows me to do that, but I can work at different hours during the day. So, for me, like, I can be at home in the middle of the day. And if I do a lot of my work in the middle of the day and I'm using a lot of electricity to run my computer or whatever, and I'm at home doing that, then I'm not actually getting charged very much for electricity under a time of use scheme, mm -hmm. right? And I'm being energy efficient according to the grid. So this affects solar too in that if I buy an energy storage system, because the cost of electricity is so expensive on peak, that means it's valuable for the utility to have it. So let's say I have a solar system with a battery and I have a bunch of energy stored in my battery and I don't really need it during the day. I can tell my battery to pump out all that energy at certain times a day to the grid. And instead of getting paid for that in a flat retail rate, let's say 32 cents, I'm paid 40 cents for it, mm -hmm. right? Because that's how much the grid values it for. Mm -hmm. But then in the middle of the day, I'm paid nothing or like 15 cents because it's very low. So economically, it's not worth it for me to send energy to the grid. It makes no sense. So I'm just going to self-consume or charge my battery during the day. That's another price signal, mm -hmm. right? So that California is experimenting with this. We are here too from a rates perspective. but So there's people, 2,500 people decided to sign up for this How as a beta, I guess, sort of? Yeah. Well, it's been going for a few years now. Oh, really? And then how does that work? It's not working great <laughs> because I think the reason I think it's not working that great is because the price signals are not enough to incentivize behavior change. Mm -hmm. So okay. kind of unfortunately for consumers, I think there is a little bit of a, a transition period. So, you know, your energy habits will have to change, but you need to experience your high electric bill for that to happen first. Yeah, there needs to be a point of like, Okay, this is a pain pressure point. Yeah, right now <laughs> not, it's not, not enough. Not to the point of like, okay, you're bleeding out. But I mean, yeah. enough to be like, all right, I'll make a change. <laughs> yeah. In reality, like we have to make a change. Well, That's the yeah. case, right? Yeah. It, like we can't, something has to change. We can't just have all, you know, it will be cheaper for you to have time of use at the end of the day. And if we do time of use in a bunch of different ways, and allow things like grid services to be put on the grid from DER, it's going to lower everyone's, our belief um, is that it's going to lower everyone's electric bill on average anyway, mm -hmm. right? So. Okay, so that's just, we are moving into close to the hour. So can we talk about some of the, uh, I guess, tariffs or some of the things you guys are proposing this legislation? Session? Uh, yeah, for yeah. legislative session. Um, yeah, sure. Sure. Let's dive into that. Okay. So our legislative session began um, in January. Uh, so, you know, we're really looking at, we'd love to see a solar on new homes mandate like California has. I'm a little bit pissed that California beat us to the punch. Um, I don't think they should. <laughs> so well, they kind of they're ahead of the game on a lot of things. They are. But I, I do appreciate how quickly we're moving forward. Um, on the things that we are, yeah, yeah, for sure. But I think, you know, Hawaii, we're small, um, but we're innovative. And, and we're also, like, we're the changes that are happening in the environment relative to climate change mm -hmm. and things like electricity usage that's not, you know, is related to climate change, but also is kind of an economic problem, uh, are affecting um, the people of Hawaii much more then it affects people in California, I would mm -hmm, say. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a little bit of a 
you know, we should be moving faster, in my opinion. Um, and it's actually, it turns out it's cheaper for us to move faster. So right. one of the things is we, we need, the reality is, is that even if you ask Kiko, what they'll say is we need lots of rooftop PV to get to our 2045 goals. We can't do it without rooftop PV. Right now, if you look at the total amount of renewable generation in the state, 40% of renewable generation is behind the meter of rooftop PV systems. 40% of it. So we, we're the lion's share of the amount of renewable generation in the state. And they expect that we will be between 40 and 50% of the total renewable generation in 2045. So that is a ton of renewable energy systems that need to go on in the state. So the, every two out of those three houses that don't have solar need, need to, to have, have solar. solar. How are we going to do that? Yeah. Right. Really quick for fossil fuels, yes. Um, what is the ratio right now as to where we're at with what Hiko uses for energy? Just I think we're to at put into perspective. 82 percent of our total generation, I think, is fossil fuel. So we have only eighteen percent that's coming from renewable. Oh, actually, oh. no. I think it's seventy-two percent. That's over twenty percent of our total general. <laughs> you gotta ask somebody at Hiko. I think it's over twenty percent of our total generation is renewable. Okay. So yeah. So we we are. More than yeah. half of our electricity yeah, exactly. usage is still fossil fuel, and that's primarily low sulfur fuel oil, so really inefficient. We have one coal-fired power plant. We don't have any natural gas burning plants, um, so most of them are, you know, basically burning diesel fuel. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Okay. So that's the one. That's a big initiative that we've got. Um, we we would like to see some. Uh, we're, we're, we're moving into EV infrastructure stuff as an organization. We're trying to promote more EV and EV chargers um, and energy efficient equipment too. Can you, for those who don't know what EV is? Yeah, EV is an electric vehicle. Yes, so think okay. of Tesla <laughs> or Nissan plug Leaf. In, yeah, yeah plug in car. Uh, even plug in hybrids, right? That's EV. So we'd like to see, and we saw this at the city and county with Bill 25, um, but we'd like to see some EV charging infrastructure mandates. So there's like a plateau between, there's a, you've got EVs on the road versus the amount of chargers that are there to provide electricity for them. And it kind of moves with each other. So you have a bunch of EVs that get sold and then you don't have enough chargers, so you need to build more chargers to have more EVs and blah, 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 blah. Right now we just don't have enough chargers. Well, and... <laughs> this is an interesting one. I had an EV, uh, well, a hybrid plug-in, mm -hmm. and loved it. Um, but then there are definitely things that just all of a sudden it costs more on your uh, car registration. Yep. And starting June 2020, I believe, right, it ends uh, for all the perks. HOV lanes and free parking. Yes. And um, by the way, we did have... 30 days free parking at the airport, <laughs> which is very nice. Not that you should be flying all the time because of uh, the cost of doing so um, to the environment. But there's also all of the, any place you have to put a meter in, I mean, all of that, you know, any, you know, municipal parking structures, it's all free. And so that's all the incentives that I think a lot of people started buying EV cars for. Um, people are still buying EV cars not knowing that this is disappearing. Yeah. But California has done away with any of their perks years ago. I don't even know how long ago they've done away with it. But they did have perks too. For well, they also EV. offer cafe credits, right? Which is like so. a kind of California credit that had to do with um, EV manufacturer production that lowered the cost of an EV car. So, you know, kind of following suit of what people have done prior you know it's i don't i mean people talk about oh they're gonna bring some stuff back or they're trying to reality is i don't think that's the case so is mm. there anything in the works for trying to have incentify because i mean from what i've heard we have less than one percent of ev cars on the road mm -hmm. um and they're wanting that number to be I don't even know, at least a percent higher, or up to 4%. I can't remember what it was that the city and county of Honolulu was talking about. But um, there's no incentives for doing it at this point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's basically it. Uh, so this is a... 
It's a catch twenty two. It's not actually because <laughs> I, mean, like... I I get mad that people like you know we have this strange kind of visceral reaction to the word incentive that like gets people really like gives them a stomach ache or whatever like oh that has an incentive that means it has to end well. Yeah, it has to end when we're in 2045 when we have a bunch of EVs and all that kind of stuff. You see this with the solar tax credit too. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, this is a false equivalency here is that in reality, all energy things are subsidized. Like, yes. If you yes. go, like, fossil fuel is the most heavily subsidized industry in the entire United States. If you go and look at, uh, you know, try and buy a gallon of gas in England and tell me how much it costs, you know. Ten dollars or seven euros or whatever it would be a gallon. Here it costs three fifty a gallon, right? That's because it's subsidized, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, and so. I think that's the other thing too. It's um, right now it's the carrot or the stick, yeah. right? And right now the carrots are here. We incentivize so the change we want to see. Take the carrots, um, jump on the bandwagon now to take advantage of it, but understand that the stick is coming. <laughs> well, it also takes longer too for. Uh, you know, low middle income people to adopt technologies, right? So it is true that, you know, for solar systems, at least, or even for EVs, you saw people buying those cars, they're more affluent, they had much more free capital. And for them, you know, buying it wasn't completely about saving money, it was about a status symbol, it was about um, externality, things like saving the environment, which is all well and good. But, you know, if you are making $20,000 a year putting food on the table yeah. for your family and that's more of a necessity the number course. one thing for you is how am I to save money right mm-hmm. so a solar system for you becomes economically very important the savings that you get from that or an EV if you save money on gas from an EV that becomes economically that's the driver for you but those it takes a long time for the total cost of a product to go down so that that market can access it. it exactly and so in the meantime like you know we're all mad about like oh well we have these incentives and the state isn't collecting money but it is collecting money it's collecting money by people saving money and spending it in the economy correct right so it's like we need to allow these incentives like we need to give them a longer tail or we have to tailor them to people that could actually use them instead mm-hmm. of wholesale getting mm-hmm. rid of them right like we're the tax credit is a good example. So we have a solar tax credit in the state that has no sunset date and is for everybody. But if we really want to change it, you know, why don't you increase it for people who are low middle income? <laughs> like give them more money and give rich people less, right, for the tax credit because it makes more sense for them, right? Mm-hmm. Don't get rid of it because we need a bunch of solar to get to 2045 and the federal government is getting rid of the federal tax credit, which is going to have huge impacts for this for the solar industry, regardless of where you live. But in Hawaii, like, you know, if we get rid of the the state tax credit, I mean, because the federal's that's very short sighted. Yeah, come down. And it's not a big, you know, it's like these little incentives. You know, the the Hawaii state tax credit, I think, is the largest single tax credit that the state gives out. I think the highest it's ever been was 110 or 120 million in a year. Wow. Right. But the total state budget is in the billions. Yeah. It's like less than 1% of the total budget goes to state tax credits. And the amount of money that those aggregate people who collected those tax credits are saving on their electricity bill and then taking that money and either putting it in savings or putting it back into the economy. Turns out that every dollar that the state spends on a state tax credit for solar, they get a dollar ninety two back. Okay. That's good to know. <laughs> So, okay, anyway, sorry. Gosh. That was a tangent, too. Tangent. Back to Wedge. <laughs> so the last thing is, so we had the EV man- management or EV infrastructure stuff. We had uh, solar on new homes. The last one is we'd like to increase the speed of the RPS. So we want to get to 100% in 2035 instead of 2045. There's evidence to suggest, and there's white papers about this. Rhodium Group did one that says that if we do it faster, it's actually cheaper. Um, for ratepayers to go faster. Uh, we also think that we should change the RPS from sales to generation, which is a very kind of wonky technical change, but it really matters right now. You know, if you look at renewable energy by sales, it is 5.8% less than renewable energy marked by generation, right? So we, as we go farther along into the RPS, that, that delta change becomes much greater and so we get kind of a false, um, you know, a false indicator of where we're at renewably for the state. 
So we kind of want to change a couple things about the RPS, make it a little bit more accurate and speed it up. So those are kind of our three big issues. There's all these other kinds of uh, solar-related bill, solar bills that we're tracking and, and um, weighing in on things that have to do with water heaters, things that have to do, obviously, with the tax credit, um, all kinds of stuff, too. But those are the three big ones. So how is how are they being perceived, I guess? And how... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> is everybody understanding all of this? <laughs> are they really grasping... I think, I think that's, I mean, for us, we're a nonprofit that's, you know, not involved with lobbying and all of that. Although we do educate and share what's going on, um, it's, I'm just curious to hear where things fall and how there, there's always battles, right? There's, there's always battles. And um, getting the right people to understand um, why and what you're doing and, and is, if that's affecting another sector. Because I think. That's one of the issues now that I'm seeing because we work with, you know, all of the sustainable sectors with Smart Living Hawaii. So we've got, we've got energy, we've got housing, we've got, you know, agriculture, environment, and then the culture itself. And so now you guys are progressing so forwardly on, you know, energy and solar and uh, renewable energy and EV and the things that you guys are doing are great. And then at the same time, we have people working really hard in the housing sector. Um, and um, this EV thing that comes up, you know, mandating to do an all new construction for a unit that's affordable housing that, <laughs> you know what I mean? It ends up being a conflict, but both parties are moving, you know, both sectors are moving forward um, to try to help Hawaii's future. So I think now is the point where, you know, depending on what it is you're trying to accomplish is that we're also going outside of our sectors um, to see, like, how is this affecting them? Are they going to now whoa, what are they doing? Okay, this is going to affect us. Like, how can we come with a compromise? Right. You know? And so I think that's where we're at with a lot of things because it's almost like the good guys are going against the good guys at some points, um, you know, and then that ends up becoming a hurdle. So if there's any way that I can, you know, connect everybody through what we do or what we talk about, then hopefully we can come to compromises that work for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I think... I agree. Um, you know, I, uh, compromise is tough, especially when you're an advocate, right? So, like, my my board, you know, pressures me to not compromise on things, right? But the reality is, it's like, you know, politically, you have to compromise on stuff. And, and, and that's good. I think, I forgot who it was, but, you know, there's this old quote that a good negotiation is when both sides walk away unhappy. <laughs> so, like, that, sometimes that's it. But I'm not I, fully... 100% like we want. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to be like, uh, you know, yeah. if someone is completely losing and someone is completely winning, then that, that was not a negotiation. That was a takeover, mm-hmm. right? There's kind of a Pareto efficiency. A balance, yeah. Yeah. So, but, you know, the EV mandate thing is a good point. Like, we had this conversation. I was on the side that we should have, you know, even more mandates than we did. And we kind of ended up in the middle with the construction industry about, like, a point system uh, is where the bill is at right now. The tax credit's another one. So we have these parties. There's, you know, uh, legislators who want to get rid of the tax credit because they think it's a drain on the state budget. And if I was being honest with myself and I, you know, I took the complete position of the HSCA that we should never, ever get rid of the tax credit ever, never change it, and we should only ever increase it, I never take that position because I know that that is almost indefensible um, for people. So I try to meet people part way. Well, if you want to get rid of it, why don't we step it down to 2045, like 1% every year, a little bit. And why don't we make it more towards low middle income people? That makes sense. This is a compromise from my position. It is, right? it is. And, it, and, you know, one that makes sense and I think that can actually move forward, I would say, with, you know, in perspective, you know, if everybody's looking at the greater good and right. the bigger whole, right, for everybody in the state of Hawaii. I think that's where we need to open our eyes and see ourselves, like, outside of the little the little tiny circle that we're in, right? And so when we start to do that, then we start to see, like, why 
why someone might be upset or why people are battling these these you know issues and um you know try to tackle things from that angle so anyhow we are way over an hour Sorry. at this point and it's not your fault we have such great content to talk about um but i think we covered just about everything i had on my list so that's really awesome i do have um some extra links that I'll definitely include on the um, podcast itself that everybody can check out so we can reach you. What's the best way to reach you, um, either your company or your organization? I mean, yeah. yeah. So we have a website, hsea.org, so hawaiisolarenergyassociation.org. You can email me directly at wgiese at hsea.org, or you can call me. Our HSEA phone is 808 808- Two three two eight three seven one. You can reach out to us on Twitter. Um, we have a Twitter account at, um, gosh, what is it? I think it's just HSEA. If you search for the Twitter, it's there. Um, we also have a Facebook group as well. Um, where no we Instagram events. No Instagram yet. We I'm I have an intern now, and I'm trying to get a bunch of solar installation pictures from our members to put on an Instagram. So that maybe yeah. we'll have that. Okay. <laughs> Working on a you know a TikTok. Well, we'll too. have all these up <laughs> up there so you guys can reach out if you have any further questions. Um, but I guess that wraps things up. We're out of time, and thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Um, thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast at www.smartlivinghi.org. So just FYI, um, we are a nonprofit now, so we are a .org as well. Also follow us on Instagram at at smart underscore living underscore Hawaii and like us on Facebook. Until next time, live smart. Thank you. Thanks.